The Champmathieu Affair, Chapter 1. The reader has doubtless divined that Monsieur Madeleine is none other than Jean Valjean. We have already looked into the depths of that conscience. The time has come to look into them again. We do so not without emotion, nor without trembling. There exists nothing more terrific than this kind of contemplation. The mind's eye can nowhere find anything more dazzling or more dark than in man. It can fix itself upon nothing which is more awful, more complex, more mysterious, or more infinite. There is one spectacle grander than the sea, that is the sky. There is one spectacle grander than the sky, that is the interior of the soul. From the first words that Javert pronounced on entering his office, at the moment when that name, which he had so deeply buried, was so strangely uttered, he was seized with stupor, and, as if intoxicated by the sinister grotesqueness of his destiny, through that stupor, he felt the shudder which precedes great shocks. He bent like an oak at the approach of a storm, like a soldier at the approach of an assault. He felt clouds full of thunderings and lightnings gathering upon his head. Even while listening to Javert, his first thought was to go, to run, to denounce himself, to drag this Champmathieu out of prison and to put himself in his place. It was painful and sharp as an incision into the living flesh, but passed away, and he said to himself, let us see, let us see. He repressed this first generous impulse and recoiled before such heroism. Doubtless it would have been fine if, after the holy words of the bishop, after so many years of repentance and self-denial, in the midst of a penitence admirably commenced, even in the presence of so terrible a conjecture, he had not faltered an instant and had continued to march on, even with pace toward that yawning pit at the bottom of which was heaven. This would have been fine, but this was not the case. We must render an account of what took place in that soul, and we can relate only what was there. What first gained control was the instinct of self-preservation. He collected his ideas hastily, stifled his emotions, took into consideration the presence of Javert, the great danger, postponed any decision with the firmness of terror, banished from his mind all consideration of the course he should pursue, and resumed his calmness as a gladiator retakes his buckler. For the rest of the day he was in this state, a tempest within, a perfect calm without. He went according to his habit to the sickbed of Fantine, and prolonged his visit by an instinct of kindness, saying to himself that he ought to do so, and recommend her earnestly to the sisters, in case it should happen that he would have to be absent. He felt vaguely that it would perhaps be necessary for him to go to Arras, and without having in the least decided upon this journey, he said to himself that, entirely free from suspicion as he was, there would be no difficulty in being a witness of what might pass and he engaged a Tilbury in order to be prepared for any emergency. He dined with good appetite. Returning to his room, he collected his thoughts. He examined the situation and found it an unheard of one, so unheard of that in the midst of his reverie by some strange impulse of almost inexplicable anxiety, he rose from his chair and bolted his door. He feared lest something might yet enter. He barricaded himself against all possibilities. A moment afterward, he blew out his light. It annoyed him, 
It seemed to him that somebody could see him. Who? Somebody? Alas, what he wanted to keep outdoors had entered, and what he wanted to render blind was looking upon him, his conscience. His conscience, that is to say, God. At the first moment, however, he deluded himself. He had a feeling of safety and solitude. The bolt drawn, he believed himself invisible. Then he took possession of himself. He placed his elbows on the table, rested his head on his hand, and set himself to meditating in the darkness. His brain had lost the power of retaining its ideas. They passed away like waves, and he grasped his forehead with both hands to stop them. Out of this tumult, which overwhelmed his will and his reason, and from which he sought to draw a certainty and a resolution, nothing came clearly forth but anguish. His brain was burning. He went to the window and threw it wide open. Not a star was in the sky. He returned and sat down by the table. The first hour thus rolled away. Little by little, however, vague outlines began to take form and to fix themselves in his meditation. He could perceive, with the precision of reality, not the whole of the situation, but a few details. It seemed to him that he had just awakened from some wondrous slumber and that he found himself gliding over a precipice in the middle of the night, standing, shivering, recoiling in vain upon the very edge of an abyss. He perceived distinctly in the gloom an unknown man, a stranger, whom fate had mistaken for him, and was pushing into the gulf in his place. It was necessary, in order that the gulf should be closed, that someone should fall in, he or the other. He had only to let it alone. All this was so violent and so strange that he suddenly felt that kind of indescribable movement that no man experiences more than two or three times in his life, a sort of convulsion of the conscience that stirs up all that is dubious in the heart, which is composed of irony, of joy, and of despair, and which might be called a burst of interior laughter. He hastily relighted his candle. Well, what, said he, what am I afraid of? Why do I ponder over these things? I am now safe. All is finished. Ah, yes, but what is there unfortunate in all this? People who should see me upon my honor would think that a catastrophe had befallen me. After all, if there is any harm done to anybody, it is no wise my fault. Providence has done it all. This is what he wishes apparently. Have I the right to disarrange what he arranges? What is it that I ask for now? Why do I interfere? It does not concern me. How? I am not satisfied. But would I have them? The aim to which I have aspired for so many years, my nightly dream, the object of my prayers to heaven, security, I have gained it. It is God's will. I must do nothing contrary to the will of God. And why is it God's will? That I may carry on what I have begun, that I may do good, that I may be one day a grand and encouraging example, that it may be said that there was finally some little happiness resulting from this suffering which I have undergone and this virtue to which I have returned. It is decided. Let the matter alone. Let us not interfere with God. Thus he spoke in the depths of his conscience, hanging over what might be called his own abyss. He rose from his chair and began to walk the room. Come, said he, 
Let us think of it no more. The resolution is formed. But he felt no joy. Quite the contrary. One can no more prevent the mind from returning to an idea than the sea from returning to a shore. In the case of a sailor, this is called the tide. In the case of the guilty, it is called remorse. God ohees the soul as well as the ocean. After the lapse of a few moments, he could do no otherwise. He resumed this somber dialogue in which it was himself who spoke and himself who listened, saying what he wished to keep silent, listening to what he did not wish to hear, yielding to that mysterious power which said to him, Think, as it said two thousand years ago to another condemned, March. He asked himself then where he was. He questioned himself upon this resolution formed. He confessed to himself that all that he had been arranging in his mind was monstrous, that to let the matter alone, not to interfere with God, was simply horrible. To let this mistake of destiny of men be accomplished, not to prevent it, to lend himself to it by his silence, to do nothing, finally was to do all. I was the last degree of hypocritical meanness. It was a base, cowardly, lying, abject, hideous crime. For the first time within eight years, the unhappy man had just tasted the bitter flavor of a wicked thought and a wicked action. He spit it out with disgust. He continued to question himself. He sternly asked himself what he had understood by this. My object is attained. He declared that his life in truth did have an object. But what object? To conceal his name? To deceive the police? Was it for so petty a thing that he had done all that he had done? Had he no other object which was the great one, which was the true one? To save, not his body, but his soul. To become honest and good again. To be an upright man. Was it not that above all, that alone, which he had always wished, and which the bishop had enjoined upon him? To close the door on his past? But he was not closing it, great God. He was reopening it by committing an infamous act. For he became a robber again and the most odious of robbers. He robbed another of his existence, his life, his peace, his place in the world. He became an assassin. He murdered. He murdered in a moral sense a wretched man. He inflicted upon him that frightful life in death, that living burial, which is called the galleys. On the contrary, to deliver himself up, to save this man stricken by so ghastly a mistake, to reassume his name, to become again from duty the convict Jean Valjean. That was really to achieve his resurrection and to close forever the hell from whence he had emerged. To fall back into it in appearance was to emerge in reality. He must do that. All he had done was nothing. If he did not do that, all his life was useless. All his suffering was lost. He had only to ask the question, what is the use? He felt that the bishop was there, that the bishop was present all the more that he was dead, that the bishop was looking fixedly at him, that henceforth Mayor Madeleine, with all his virtues, would be abominable to him, and the galley slave, Jean Valjean, would be admirable and pure in his sight, that men saw his mask, but the bishop saw his face, that men saw his life, but the bishop saw his conscience. He must then go to Arras, deliver the wrong Jean Valjean, denounce the right one. Alas, 
That was the greatest of sacrifices, the most poignant of victories, the final step to be taken, but he must do it. Mournful destiny. He could only enter into sanctity in the eyes of God by returning into infamy in the eyes of men. Well, said he, let us take this course. Let us do our duty. Let us save this man. He pronounced these words in a loud voice without perceiving that he was speaking aloud. He took his books, verified them, and put them in order. He threw into the fire a package of notes which he held against needy small traders. He wrote a letter which he sealed, and upon the envelope of which might have been read, if there had been anyone in the room at the time, Monsieur Lafitte, banker, Rue des Atrois, Paris. The letter to Monsieur Lafitte finished, he put it in his pocket as well as a pocketbook and began to walk again. The current of his thoughts had not changed. He still saw his duty clearly written in luminous letters, which flared out before his eyes and moved with his gaze. Go, avow thy name, denounce thyself. He felt that he had reached the second decisive moment of his conscience and his destiny, that the bishop had marked the first phase of his new life, that the Chapmetio marked the second. After a great crisis, a great trial. His blood rushed violently to his temples. He walked back and forth constantly. Midnight was struck first from the parish church, then from the city hall. He counted the twelve strokes of the two clocks, and he compared the sound of the two bells. It reminded him that a few days before, he had seen at a junk shop an old bell for sale, upon which this was his name, Antoine Albin de Romainville. He was cold. He kindled a fire. He did not think to close the window. Meanwhile, he had fallen into his stupor again. It required not a little effort to recall his mind to what he was thinking of before the clock struck. He succeeded at last. Ah, yes, said he, I had formed the resolution to denounce myself. And then, all at once, he thought of Fantine. Stop, said he, this poor woman. Here was a new crisis. Fantine, abruptly appearing in his reverie, was like a ray of unexpected light. It seemed to him that everything around him was changing its aspect. He exclaimed, Ah, yes, indeed. So far I have thought only of myself. I have only looked to my own convenience. It is whether I shall keep silent or denounce myself, conceal my body or save my soul, be a despicable and respected magistrate or an infamous and venerable galley slave. It is myself, always myself, only myself. But, good God, all this is egotism. Different forms of egotism, but still egotism. Suppose I should think a little of others? The highest duty is to think of others. Let us see, let us examine. In 10 years, I shall have made 10 millions. I scatter it over the country. I keep nothing for myself. What is it to me? What I am doing is not for myself. The prosperity of all goes on increasing. Industry is quickened and excited. Manufactories and workshops are multiplied. Families, a hundred families, a thousand families are happy. The country becomes populous. Villages spring up where there were only farms. Farms spring up where there was nothing. Poverty disappears. And with poverty disappear debauchery, prostitution, theft, murder, all vices, all crimes. And this poor mother brings up her child. 
and the whole country is rich and honest. Ah, yes, how foolish, how absurd I was. What was I speaking of in denouncing myself? This demands reflection, surely, and nothing must be precipitate. What, because it would have pleased me to do the grand and the generous? That is melodramatic, after all. Because I only thought of myself, of myself alone, what? To save from a punishment, perhaps a little too severe, but in reality, just. Nobody knows who, a thief, a scoundrel, at any rate. Must an entire country be let to go to ruin? Must a poor hapless woman perish in the hospital? Must a poor little girl perish on the street? Like dogs, ah, that would be abominable. And the mother not even see her child again? And the child hardly have known her mother? And all for this old whelp of an apple thief, who beyond all doubt deserves the galleys for something else, if not for this. Fine scruples these, which save an old vagabond who has, after all, only a few years to live, and who will hardly be more unhappy in the galleys than in his hovel, and which sacrifice a whole population. Mothers, wives, children. Take it at the very worst. Suppose there were a misdeed for me in this, and that my conscience should someday reproach me. The acceptance for the good of others of these reproaches which weigh only upon me, of this misdeed which affects my only soul, why, that is devotion, that is virtue. He arose and resumed his walk. This time it seemed to him that he was satisfied. Diamonds are found only in the dark places of the earth. Truths are found only in the depths of thought. It seemed to him that after having descended into these depths, after having groped so long in the blackest of this darkness, he had at last found one of these diamonds, one of these truths, and that he held it in his hand, and it blinded him to look at it. Yes, thought he, this is it. I am in the true road. I have the solution. I must end by holding fast to something. My choice is made. Let the matter alone. No more vacillation, no more shrinking. This is in the interest of all, not in my own. I am Madeleine. I remain Madeleine. Woe to him who is Jean Valjean. He and I are no longer the same. I do not recognize that man. I no longer know what he is. If it is found that anybody is Jean Valjean at this hour, let him take care of himself. That does not concern me. That is a fatal name which is floating about in the darkness. If it stops and settles upon any man, so much the worse for that man. He looked at himself in the little mirror that hung over his mantelpiece and said, Yes, to come to a resolution has solaced me. I am quite another man now. He took a few steps more, then he stopped short. Come, said he, I must not hesitate before any of the consequences of the resolution I have formed. There are yet some threads which knit me to this Jean Valjean. They must be broken. There are, in this very room, objects which would accuse me, mute things which would be witnesses. It is done. All these must disappear. He felt in his pocket, drew out his purse, opened it, and took out a little key. He put this key into a lock, the whole of which hardly visible, lost as it was in the darkest shading of the figures on the paper which covered the wall. A secret door opened, a kind of false press built between the corner of the wall and the casing of the chimney. There was nothing in this closet 
but a few refuse trifles. A blue smock frock, an old pair of trousers, an old haversack, and a great thorn stick, iron-bound at both ends. Those who had seen Jean Valjean at the time he passed through D in October 1815 would have recognized easily all the fragments of this miserable outfit. He cast a furtive look toward the door, as if he were afraid it would open in spite of the bolt that held it. Then, with a quick and hasty movement, and at a single armful, without even a glance at these things which he had kept so religiously, and with so much danger during so many years, he took the whole, rags, stick, haversack, and threw them all into the fire. In a few seconds, the room and the wall opposite were lit up with great red flickering glare. It was all burning. The thorn stick cracked and threw out sparks into the middle of the room. The haversack, as it was consumed with the horrid rags which it contained, left something uncovered which glistened in the ashes. By bending toward it, one could have easily recognized a piece of silver. It was doubtless the 40 sous piece stolen from the little Savoyard. But he did not look at the fire. He continued to walk to and fro, always at the same pace. Suddenly, his eyes fell upon two silver candlesticks on the mantel, which were glistening dimly in the reflection. Stop, thought he. All Jean Valjean is contained in them too. They also must be destroyed. He took the two candlesticks. There was fire enough to melt them quickly into an unrecognizable ingot. He bent over the fire and warmed himself a moment. It felt really comfortable to him. The pleasant warmth, said he. He stirred the embers with one of the candlesticks. A minute more, and they would have been in the fire. At that moment, it seemed to him that he heard a voice crying within him, Jean Valjean, Jean Valjean. His hair stood on end. He was like a man who hears some terrible thing. Yes, that is it. Finish, said the voice. Complete what you are doing. Destroy these candlesticks. Annihilate this memorial. Forget the bishop. Forget all. Ruin this Champmathieu. Yes, very well. Applaud yourself. So it is arranged. It is determined. It is done. Behold a man, a graybeard, who knows not what he is accused of, who has done nothing, it may be, an innocent man whose misfortune is caused by your name, upon whom your name weighs like a crime, who will be taken instead of you, will be condemned, will end his days in abjection and in horror. Very well, be an honored man yourself. Remain, Monsieur Mayor, remain honorable and honored, enrich the city, feed the poor, bring up the orphans, live happy, virtuous and admired, and all this time while you are here in joy and in the light. There shall be a man wearing your red blouse, bearing your name in ignominy, and dragging your chain in the galleys. Yes, this is a fine arrangement. Oh, wretch. The sweat rolled off his forehead. He looked upon the candlesticks with haggard eyes. Meanwhile, the voice which spoke within him had not ended. It continued. Jean Valjean, there shall be about you many voices which will make great noise, which will speak very loud, and which will bless you, and one only which nobody shall hear, and which will curse you in the darkness. Well, listen, wretch, all these blessings shall fall before they reach heaven. Only the curse shall mount into the presence of God. This voice, at first quite feeble, which was raised from the most obscure depths of his conscience, 
had become by degrees loud and formidable, and he heard it now at his ear. It seemed to him that it had emerged from himself and that it was speaking now from without. He thought he heard the last words so distinctly that he looked about the room with a kind of terror. Is anybody there, he asked, aloud and in a startled voice. Then he continued with a laugh, which like which is like the laugh of an idiot. What a fool I am. There cannot be anybody here. There was one, but he who was there was not of such as the human eye can see. He put the candlesticks on the mantel. He now recoiled with equal terror from each of the resolutions which he had formed in turn. Each of the two ideas which counseled him appeared to him as fatal as the other. What a fatality, what a chance that this Champ Mathieu should be mistaken for him, to be hurled down headlong by the very means which Providence seemed at first to have employed to give him full security. There was a moment during which he contemplated the future. Denounce himself, great God, give himself up. He saw with infinite despair all that he must leave, all that he must resume. He must then bid farewell to this existence, so good, so pure, so radiant, to this respect of all, to honor, to liberty. Great God, instead of that, the galley crew, the iron collar, the red blouse, the chain at his foot, fatigue, the dungeon, the plank bed, all these horrors which he knew so well. At his age, after having been what he was, oh, what wretchedness! Can destiny then be malignant like an intelligent being and become monstrous like the human heart? And do what he might, he always fell back upon this sharp dilemma which was at the bottom of his thought. To remain in paradise and there become a demon. To re-enter into hell and there become an angel. What shall be done, great God? What shall be done? The torment from which he had emerged with so much difficulty, broke loose anew within him. His ideas again began to become confused. They took that indescribable, stupefied and mechanical shape, which is peculiar to despair. The name Romanville returned constantly to his mind with two lines of a song he had formerly heard. He thought that Romanville is a little wood near Paris where young lovers go to gather lilacs in the month of April. He staggered without as well as within. He walked like a little child that is just allowed to go alone. He could see nothing distinctly. The vague forms of all the reasonings thrown out by his mind trembled and were dissipated one after another in smoke. But this much he felt, that by whichever resolve he might abide, necessarily, and without possibility of escape, something of himself would surely die that he was entering into a sepulchre on the right hand as well as on the left, that he was suffering a death agony, the death agony of his happiness, or the death agony of his virtue. Alas, all his resolutions were again upon him. He was no further advanced than when he began. So struggled beneath its anguish this unhappy soul. Eighteen hundred years before this, this unfortunate man, the mysterious being, in whom are aggregated all the sanctities and all the sufferings of humanity. He also, while the olive trees were shivering in the fierce breath of the infinite, had long put away from his hand the fearful chalice that appeared before him, dripping with shadow and running over with darkness in the star-filled depths.